0: It's February 11th, 2021, and you're listening to the Architecture Geeks podcast. I'm Larry. And I'm Matthew. And we're your friendly neighborhood architects being geeky as we want to be. Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is our next, the next episode of our international series, as we promised, as we promised last week. And so we are going to not diddle about too much and just sort of hop right into things. Our guest today is Phil Coffey with Coffee Architects, and I am going to let him introduce himself right off the bat.
1: Good evening from London. Uh, My name is Phil Coffey. Um, As uh, Larry just said, I'm director of Coffee Architects. Uh, Coffee Architects are 20 strong practice in London, working on all scales of project from small um, houses, new build houses these days up to our biggest completed project is four hundred thousand square foot master plan in china wow that's
0: that's big (laughs) well so so really what we want to do today is is you know as as we mentioned on the uh, when we first started doing the international podcast series was that we want to talk about places that we can't go because well obviously we can't go and so one of the places that we wanted to talk about really was london because well, I've been, and I really love it. And I think from a residential standpoint, there's plenty to see. Um, my my image of, of London has always been, when you talk about housing, it's these long blocks of of townhomes, essentially, or I guess well, what we think of as townhomes, all just smashed together so you have this long, giant facade down the block. So we're going to get into a little bit of that and how people there are using their, their gardens. But But to kick things off, what I really wanted to ask, because it's 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 hard to talk about things today without talking about the pandemic. We wanted to get a feel for what what the current restrictions are right now in England and how you guys are sort of dealing with that. You know, are, are you is it all remote work now and how are you working out meeting with clients and, and job site visits, all that sort of stuff? So so what's really going on there?
1: Well, we're in full lockdown. So um, I have a couple of friends who tried to escape abroad. Um, a couple of weeks ago, they failed. Um, it's You're not supposed to leave your home at the moment. Um, so I'm on the 17th floor of a tower in Old Street, which is in East London, I'm looking out west towards the BT tower. So I'm very fortunate, but um, some other people, some people who I work with aren't as fortunate. Um, it's quite difficult to be to be stuck at home, quite literally. The government actually today is talking about um, maybe delaying the the possibility of holidays in the summer, because everybody's been really looking forward to Easter and summer to get away somewhere, um, get some fresh air. And um, it looks like that's being put back because of the different variants that are coming from around the world, including the South African variant. And of course, the Kent um, UK variant that I believe is now over the pond with you guys. So... It's, uh, it's been quite tough uh, business-wise. We made a decision very early on because we felt that you know, there's a whole big question about offices and people returning to offices. Uh, but we halved the size of our office within three months um, of the beginning of the pandemic. And uh, we went totally uh, cloud-based. So now we work all, all work off laptops from home. And we see that continuing after the pandemic because we, we, we haven't seen much of a productivity drop, to be honest. We're very fortunate we work with a lot of talented and ambitious people but um a little less work work office space but more space to collaborate and a little bit more working from home because it really helps the work-life balance so i think i think that this was going to happen anyway over time because of technology but the pandemic just seems to have sped it up considerably and i don't see anybody um, getting back quickly to the way things were
0: well, so so, how are you dealing? Meeting with clients or talking with clients? Are you doing a lot of Zoom meetings, or how how's that being handled?
1: I have square eyes at the moment. Um, I'm spending an awful lot of time on Zoom, um, and you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, of course, then you met met with friends in the evening and you had a drink and you were you were on online. But these days, you you finish, and the last thing you want to do is stare at the computer screen. And that's not to say that I'm not enjoying this, of course, um, but there is there is. That it is eight hours a day on, on Zoom and Teams. Um, uh, new clients, interestingly. I mean, I think that's a really interesting question about clients. Is it's It's been the biggest concern, really, is that none of the serendipitous moments of bumping into people um, when you're out and about, going to conferences, uh, going to the pub, um, uh, talking with friends. You know, it's serendipity where work comes from. And, of course, one thing that the pandemic has done is just remove that serendipity all of the meetings that you have tend to be set up. But interestingly, I think organically, people have become less afraid to make connections now um, straight off the bat over the internet um, and through different um, media and sources. So I think there's going to be, you know, when I think of the times, I mean, getting across London, I'm sure getting across Dallas or getting across LA or getting across New York is pretty tough. And it's pretty tough in London. And the amount of time that we used to spend traveling from one side of London to the next in order to meet clients and for them to meet us, of course, as well was, was, was troublesome. Didn't leave as much time to actually do some work. And I think now we're much more productive. We're not traveling to work, from work across London to go and meet clients. And so uh, between the serendipity and the forced nature of having to commute across London, I think there's a balance. So we picked up Uh, Quite a few new jobs. Um, The beginning of this year has been really exciting. uh, There seems to be movement. I mean, I think that's one of the things about architecture, isn't it? It's kind of like um, turning a ship. Uh, It takes a long time to get out and a long time to get in. And thankfully, it's not like running a pub, which, you know, the hospitality sector here has been in a lot of trouble. um, Because, um, you know, one day you've got a pub full of people and next day you've got nobody in the pub. Um, or the hotel, or the theatre, or the restaurant. But with architecture, you know, some of our projects last two years, three years, and so during that period, you know, if the pandemic starts, those projects still move on, and you still know the clients, and then it's about picking up some new stuff along the way. I was talking about a kind of a shadow. You know, if I go on holiday for two weeks, there's always a shadow in the work that we get in simply because I've not been around. Um, And it it feels to me that the pandemic will have a certain kind of shadow, although I do think there's a huge amount of pent-up demand. And in the end, people need to put their money somewhere and they need to invest. And architecture um, and infrastructure and construction are great places to start to restart an economy. And I think the government... Is aware, and if they're not, they should be very aware that um, architects, contractors, um, and the design industry can really help um, get out of these the situations like these.
0: Yeah, we we have certainly seen an uptick here in um, residential projects, and, and part of me, part of me thinks it's it's really just the fact that people have been stuck at home and staring at their four walls for so long that they can't stand it anymore or they're they're fully officing the from home and don't have the space for it. So for us, we really have or for me personally, since I, I own my business, I really have seen sort of this uptick in interest in residential architecture. Are you guys so So you guys are seeing something similar then?
1: One of the, One of my passions in architecture is light. I'm my father's a photographer. I'm a photographer. Um, you know, a proper one who knows how to use aperture. Um, That's the first question you ask a photographer if they say they are one, you ask them, you know, if they can use aperture and whether or not they can focus correctly. Um, Because there are so many people taking images these days, of course, and everybody can take a photograph. um, But there's a slightly different way of taking a photograph if you know how to use a camera. The reason I say that is I'm I'm passionate about light. And um, I think that the more people are connected to light or or made conscious of light which I think is part of an architect's job and certainly a photographer's job is they're more connected to their environment if they're more connected to their environment then they care a little bit more for it because uh, yeah I care a lot about the environment I've been fortunate enough to travel quite a lot and one thing I've noticed in in the way that you describe is that one of the good things out of all the many terrible things that have come out of this pandemic in terms of the way we live, is that people are much more conscious of their environment now. They're much more conscious of their, the inter- interior spaces that they inhabit, what's good for them and what's bad for them, because you know, they haven't been anywhere else. And light is a big part of that. Comfort is a big part of that. Heat and the environment, a big part of that. Um, I don't think I've ever spent so long in my home, um, I'm fortunate enough, and I shouldn't say this, but I live in a tower block, which has got comfort cooling in it. So I've been at 21 degrees through the summer, through the winter, and here today as well. And sometimes I'm on Zoom with friends or with colleagues, and they've got jumpers on and coats on in their house. And I recognize that other places, it's actually cold out there today. So I think in a wider sense, people are just becoming much more conscious of their environment. And yes, on the backside of that, there's been a significant uptick in as you describe it, in the question of people where they live and how they live, whether that be through extensions, whether it be refurbing their homes, or whether they want to move out of London or into London um, and build their own home to create their own environment which they're comfortable in.
2: So one of the things that we were really fascinated about and and, and something that I've I've seen a lot of is is the the culture of residential extensions in in London. It's a it's a crowded city, and 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 things that we've noticed about the residential work in the city before COVID is that London has a strong culture of basements and backyard extensions or, or renovation. And I, so, I guess we're we're trying to understand what it's like to do an addition in in England and in London specifically, because here in the U.S. we have this. It's a, it's a pretty uniform culture. It's, it's a th- orthogonal streets and sites. They're detached houses. And, and the vast majority of our cities are under 200 years old. So that way, if you're digging a foundation in the backyard, you, you don't really have to worry about digging up some Roman ruin or, or, or finding King Richard in, the, in a parking lot or, or anything like that so it, it, it makes so an addition in the u.s makes a, a pretty straightforward makes for a pretty straightforward process unless there's some re- regulatory obstacles can you compare that with your experience in london and and especially i especially and i'm i'm especially curious about your 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 hidden house edition to to hear how, how how that all
1: went together well there's a couple of long stories in there but um the 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 regulatory side is a really important side in 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 london uh especially just coming back to what larry said earlier about london and the kind of the long rows of houses i remember when i was young and i imagined living in london on in one of those beautiful terraces you know with a park in the front with the back facing west with tall ceilings and of course those houses exist but um, London is a is a city of villages, you know, and of all ages. Um, and we went through the war, of course, so there's a lot of disruption in that sense. Um, so it's a fragmented city in that in that regard. And so you get many many different types, you know, from from terraced houses or row houses, I think, as you call them, to mansion blocks, to uh, kind of fragmented triangular sites in between places, really dense urban, tight bits of the city. And then, of course, more 1960s open spaces and the the proliferation of houses post-war as well um, in terms of semi-detached. So there's a huge amount and variety of different types of home and each of them have their challenges. We've worked on most of those types of houses and I guess the the question is always the same for us, is how does somebody live in the house? Um, What's the typology of now? What's the typology of the future Um, How do people live? You know, we see gender balance changing significantly over the last 20 years in terms of the way houses are laid out, open plan or cellular spaces, connections of back gardens, um, as we call them. And so so there's a lot to think about in terms of the regulatory side. There's a kind of there's a constant battle, I think, in in London, because Britain is, in essence, a kind of conservative small sea country or many people would have you believe And the planning department is actually, I would say, conservative. Um, We have a huge amount of conservation areas in London, which have significant restrictions on what you can do in those places, although they are loosening up um, uh, during the pandemic. That kind of constant battle against the bureaucracy and the the construction of extensions into the city is, is, is an ongoing question. Quite a lot of the time in conservation now you can do stuff to the rear of homes that you can't see but you can't change the front of the homes in order to protect that the heritage of those locations so that the, the, there's, there's a lot to think about um, in every home um, which which is what makes it i think so interesting because uh, architects like a boundary or two don't they you know if you can push against those boundaries then sometimes through that through that um, curiosity and that strength of character you can, you can design something and create something which answers all the questions that need to be answered but with a bit of delight and joy um, and I think that's why London architecture or certainly the residential market through uh, different awards and different um, uh, practices, young practices, show so much creativity um, and, and ambition.
2: I, I absolutely agree with you that having boundaries to push against makes architects more creative in, in how they how how you can solve a uh, a resident a, a complex residential site or um, having a, a, res, a proximity slope and how how you can you know squeeze an addition under in, into an attic underneath uh, a, a, a
1: proximity slope per some kind of zoning like that. So so. To give an example of what I was describing, in essence, Hidden House sits next, directly next to a grade two listed property. Um, I actually, my office used to be below the site where the house was built. Um, And I was actually offered the site to buy the site. And I didn't buy it because I thought uh, we probably wouldn't get planning on the site, interestingly enough. Um, And then a client bought the site and they approached us because we knew we were in the office below. And then we got planning for the site that I didn't think we could get planning on, which was a bit back to front. But the, the, the house itself is a, is a really good example of trying to respond to a listed property in a conservation area, because there's a question about harming uh, listed buildings and the curtilage within which you build. So there's a wall that goes around the, the large, in essence, uh, apartment block, which was built in 1891, I believe. In essence, we had to hide the house in order to build on that site. And to hide the house, we could pretty much get one window in the wall that wrapped around, which matched the existing wall. Um, And we filled the site. Um, But then the joy was in the roof. So we created a roof uh, which had these ocular windows within them um, and particular angles, which gave the roof a, a certain lightness which would then allow light to pass. You only get it first thing in the morning and actually up till about one o'clock before it passes behind the listed building. But the size of the house um, and the, the tightness and the kind of the detail that had to be done in order to make that work was, was, was a real joy. And the client was actually from Turkey and he was an architect as well. And we worked really well in the collaboration. But to get to that point, we had to go to pre-planning. I think we went to pre-planning twice, which is, a, which is a process that we have to go through in London. So you do a pre-planning application and then a full planning application in order to start a conversation quite often with public or um, local consultation for the project that you're going to build. Because at the planning stage, you go to committee, if it's not under delegated powers, and at committee, um, you have councillors and councillors are there protect in essence the residents of their ward so it's a a truly democratic process um, that requires lots of stakeholders so even for a small house like hidden House, which you can't see behind a brick wall you still have to go through this process in order to to build things Um, and I think there is a tension in that which leads to as I was describing kind of more creativity um, and uh, more value if you like I mean I think one of the things that underpins all of this is just land value uh, there's a question about basements and about extensions uh, and about going up into roofs and the truth is is that in london you you, you can make good work uh, because the value is there because if you're building for three thousand four thousand pounds a square meter but you're selling that square meter for anything from seven to £35,000 a square metre, then it's worth building. And so if there was no development control, everybody would just keep building and building and building because it's an easy way to make money. So architecture is always related to land value, but particularly, I think, in London um, and in residential areas where people are trying to extend. And there was a moment in the past where people, especially in places like the Royal Borough of Kensington and Chelsea, where you're at the upper level of cost per square meter so every square meter you build um you you it's a great investment and so if you have the wealth and you you have capital and you buy a house and you put seven stories underneath your home then you've you've made a lot of money it's not necessarily for amenity it's actually an investment um there's only so many swimming pools people can swim in
0: i honestly think that's probably the best description when i think about what you were talking about the the you know, going down seven floors, because the, the one of the things that fascinated me about the whole residential extensions in London was this idea of, of you know, every, everyone, in my head, you know, you everyone has sort of this garden space, and there's only so much you can do within it. So there was all these, all of a sudden, all these homes where they're going down three or four floors, but extending out, you know, 100 feet or 200 feet or something. And I think everything I saw, every one of them had a swimming pool in it. All I could think was, I, I don't know how how that makes sense for anybody. But I guess when you're limited to space like that, that that you just sort of work with what you've got. And I guess uh, obviously, if you have the money to do it, then you can do that sort of thing.
1: Yeah, I think that I think that's right. I mean, I just on the uh, as a kind of uh, a sidestep from that, of course, it's incredibly bad for the environment. Basements cost a fortune and a huge amount of embodied carbon. For space that is not necessarily going to be used with any great saturation um and so thankfully for a number of reasons one is because local residents were kicking up a fuss two is because the immunity really wasn't required three for the the sustainability and environmental argument uh and all we now need to do gone gone are the gone of the um, wonderful days of these seven-story basements they do still happen However, through the planning reg- regulatory bodies, the, it, it has been stopped. And in places like RBKC now, um, anything more than one story um, below ground level, it, it can happen on larger sites, but it's much, much more difficult to do so now. So, so those days have, have kind of gone, and I don't think it's uh, it's a bad thing.
0: Well, that's probably a good thing. They're they're not really happening anymore because I, I remember remember reading one article that the entire house collapsed into the site because the underpinning as they were doing the the dig out apparently wasn't in place so amazingly nobody got killed but still that seems a bit bit much just to have an extra you know few square meters i guess
1: i mean i I can tell you a story about that i was one of my the first houses that i made was with a contractor friend of mine who unfortunately has died since but he had a friend called jerry jerry was from ireland and he was called jerry the hole and Jerry the whole um, dug basements, um, and he was digging a basement in the house that I'd designed. It was kind of on the side. It wasn't really um, through coffee architects. It was a long time before that. And I went downstairs, and it was one of those salutary moments when you should remember what you were taught at part three as an architect is you should always talk to the contractor and never speak to the subcontractor. And I mentioned to Jerry that the basement wasn't flat, and uh, I was quite sure of this, and there was about 500 mil in it, and I pointed it out to him. Um, he seemed to be fine with it, but, but I, I mentioned it to Gavin, the contractor, later, and then we went to the pub, and we all, it was a Friday, so we all went to the pub and we were having a drink. And Jerry literally launched at me um, after a pint or two across the table and told me never to tell him how to dig a basement again. Um, so, so I uh, underpinning at that scale was, was one thing back in those days, but it was, it was a side to less lesson in not speaking to a subcontractor because Jerry, the Hole will come and get you.
2: Even his nickname sounds intimidating because if Jerry, the Hole is coming after you, he's going to put you six feet under.
1: So <laughs> <laughs> it's quite the day.
2: So, so, so if, if I were to approach you as as a, a practicing british architect for to do an american edition or, or an american renovation what would what would your first thought be just just based on the the cultural differences between between practicing in, in england and and what you see for from
1: what happens over here good question i mean i've been to I've, I've traveled america quite a bit um been fortunate enough to see quite a lot of the modernist stuff in west uh, on the west coast Um, down the middle and the east as well, Um, and been to some of your finest uh, seminal pieces of architecture, all of which I love. But I can't say that I know that much about the extensions that happen. The the one that really sticks out in my mind is uh, when Frank Gehry changed. There was a moment, wasn't there, in life when he he did the extension of of his own home um, out of fences from his next-door neighbour, as I remember it. And yeah, I think that's super exciting. And I guess that sticks in my mind as, as a moment, because there's a certain freedom that comes from all of that wonderful space that you can drive um, in with your, with your Cadillac. And um, so I kind of like that idea of, of, of uh, how, how do you describe it? Object buildings which sit in, in, in more space and then creating something out of your own mind. I think there's a difference between being an architect in London and being in the US, is that maybe maybe you you have to have uh, more, uh, more internal boundaries in uh, America than you do in London, because there's so many pressures from the urban environment here that you kind of have to work from the inside out here, whereas perhaps in America you can start to think a bit more working from the outside in.
0: I, I think that's fair. Honestly, the uh, the whole notion, you know, the part of what what kind of drove our interest in this too was just the fact that that you know the first for the first two months of the pandemic here, we were or uh, I don't know maybe not the first two months but it felt that way. Probably the first three or four weeks when they really shut things down, people seemed to suddenly become very cognizant of their own backyards and consequently of their own space, and I think. From that aspect, you know, talk, talking about working from the outside in that that people, when they were talking, talking about adding on to their home, they were they weren't looking necessarily just at, oh, I, I just need an extra space for this. They were looking at how much room do I have that I can take up? You know, what's what's my how how deep is my backyard? How wide are things? How much space do I really have to play with? And so you're kind of, I, I guess, in that sense, working working somewhat backwards working from the outside in because because and and there are regulations here there's only some such a, a set percentage of lot coverage that you're allowed to do so you do sort of have to play with that a little bit as well as it's, it's you know, how much can i actually get on the lot before i go over what's actually allowed
1: we, we always talk about in our office We always talk about the long view and the tall view um seeing the horizon and seeing the sky uh two very simple things uh, in the world but it's a big part of architecture for me. Certainly, knowing where the sun is, or the angle of the sun is, the angle of the light that's coming through the apertures that you make, and that can work from a small house in a tight urban site to uh, a, a project in China or an office building in Kings Cross. Um, and and I think in residential projects, we talk about that because there is a huge amount of value. I mean, when we first started working on homes, I did my own little terraced house one of the first projects that we did. Um, and just to be able to get a sense of height. Uh, for instance, terrace, terrace houses are like layer cakes. You live on the ground floor and then you've got four stories of bedrooms above you and you always feel like you're squeezed underneath all of those beds above you. But actually, if somehow you can get a sense that the sky is above you through the, through the stairwell with a skylight at the top and maybe a glass stair. And if you open the back up and when you first open the front door, you can see to the back of your back garden, then instead of the house being contained, you've all, all of a sudden got infinity upwards and to the back of your back garden, you've maybe got 20 meters or 30 meters. And whilst it's wonderful for lifestyle because it makes it feel fresh, open, you're connected to the environment, you can see planting, it's also really good for value because it makes people it makes places feel bigger. Um, as somebody once told me the only job of an architect is to make, Spaces feel bigger than they are, and I think there's a certain truth to that.
2: With the move towards everybody kind of working from home or even a hybrid model, where where do you see the industry? I mean, we and we touched on this a bit at the the top of things, but uh, where where do you see work in general going after COVID? Is this is are we all going to rush back to the office? Is is there going to be all complete working from home? Is there going to be a hybrid model? How how do you see things? kind of playing out over time after after everything kind of calms back down?
1: I think, in general, people will want to work from home more. I mean, that's certainly my experience of friends, colleagues. Um, and, you know, we can understand why. It's uh, a better work-life balance. From my window here, I can see the city, uh, and I can see very, very large office buildings um, just completed with a huge floor plates. And it'll be really interesting to see how people will want to return to those spaces because of the commute, you know, to get into London. It's an hour, an hour and a half for some people, an hour and a half home. Um, and an awful lot of these jobs, maybe you don't need to be in the office. It's, it's, it's a question of culture as well. As maybe big companies, um, one of the things that they rest on is the idea that they own a big building, that they have that kudos. Um, and actually, be, it, in, in a sense, it democratizes uh, work because you're only as good, when you're sat in your kitchen and you're on Zoom, you're only as good as the ideas that you talk about. And you're only as good as the ideas that you come up with. And I think that's different when you you have this sense of going to a large developer or a large contractor, and there's this kind of humbling experience. So I, I, I think it's a good thing in some ways. We've just finished an office building in King's Cross, which is full of light, and it talks about facade and the way that you can ameliorate light to kind of give you a sense of time in the day to uh, help with your concentration, um, reconnect you with your circadian rhythms, um, which is what, in essence, good architecture for me is all about. So the fundamental question is, when you get up in the morning, do you want to go to that office space? A, a A long time ago, well, maybe not that long ago, 10 years ago, people were talking about the the home becoming the office there's an awful lot of conversations about that question and about how you put offices into homes and and we do that now of course because people will want to be in the homes more and um, working in spaces that are comfortable for them but more and more offices are now becoming homes and I think that we'll find more and more of that uh, offices are a place to collaborate offices are a place to meet and not necessarily to turn up and do the kind of the the, the the more manual tasks that you can just get on with on your computer in in in, in the home. So I think there's a there's a balance uh, that whether people will want to come into London, whether they'll want to work from home. Everybody's different, but I do think it's going to fundamentally change, and I think for the better because I think it will help with work life balance. Here's hoping anyway, because. God knows, I really don't want it to get back to where it was before because it was, you know, London is a hectic place. um, And whilst it's not very healthy being stuck in the house at the moment, I do think it is very healthy for people to have more time to themselves, um, less travel, and it's good for the environment. It's good for the city as well. More cycling, more walking, less getting in the cars, less bunched up in trains. London's a busy place, but, you know, it doesn't have to be quite as busy as it was before.
0: I think here we're gonna see sort of somewhere in between as well that, that people will go to the office, but not all the time. That there's gonna be that move to be able to, to still keep people working at home if they want to or if they need to. I think the bigger challenge here is really the architecture firms who are very stuck, stuck in sort of this old school idea of, we have to have everyone here because how else do we collaborate? So the, the potential for them to sort of push back on everyone and say, starting to say you're going to come to the office no matter what. I, I think it's, it'll be interesting to see how things play out in the next few years. I, I know there are. I, I do have colleagues who I have one colleague who works from home, has worked from home since 2010. He doesn't have any employees. All of his project teams are virtual. They're contract employees and they're scattered across the U.S., so he actually, every project, he assembles a team and and that team works on that project and he pays on his contract work and that works for him. So I, I, I think that idea that you don't have to necessarily be sitting at a desk in a, in a confined office space all the time will, will certainly change a bit. But I, I, I'm, I'm curious to see how the architecture firms really handle it.
1: Our office is closed, um, but there are some people who will who, who, who go in and they might sit in there by themselves uh, for family reasons or for other reasons or personal reasons. Um, and that's really up, up to them. But we would certainly never say that everybody should go in. But right now, lockdown is very difficult. But there was an intervening period where the government was saying we could go in if we wanted to. Or... So d- during that period, it was quite interesting because as you say, you kind of forget how quickly you can resolve things if you're sat next to each other. That might sound ridiculous. But that kind of proximity and just bumping into people and the serendipitous nature of just seeing a drawing on a computer and having a conversation with someone just doesn't happen when you're at home. You have to make that effort to have a review. And so I do think there is, there's a loss of the serendipity in our architecture um, and in creativity by not being next to each other. But um, somebody I used to work with once said that um, all designs start in my mind. And in, and in a sense, there is, there, is, there is a point which is that the more time you have to think and the more time you have to just put things down, um, you can find a way. And we've been, I think we've been pretty creative during this process. We've done a number of different competitions, which we're extremely proud of and uh, waiting to hear. Um, and so hopefully we'll pull a few of those off. And and that has been more challenging than normal. And of course, the the, the, the more physical sense and and issue is to do with model making and the physical activity of just sketching in front of one another on one big sheet of paper, which of course you can't do. And I do miss that quite a bit.
2: I did have one question going back to the boundaries. Sorry, this is just coming. I'm just replaying some of the stuff in my head. Um, I did have one question about the boundaries. We, we talked a little bit about some of the boundaries that we we bump up against, and and how architects can be creative with with some of those boundaries. What what is the most interesting boundary that you or or your office has had to work with when doing a project in London?
1: The office building we've just completed in King's Cross is incredibly unusual because. It's just north of King's Cross Station itself. And it has three mainline tunnels that come outside of it um, and run directly underneath the building. And the crown of one of them is uh, only three meters below the site. And so it's the first time we've ever designed a building by weight. Um, so we started off looking at different structural solutions and dynamics. Um, and in the end, the, the building was in essence designed around the dynamic movement that was caused by the tunnels below. And the uh, and the weight that we could put upon those tunnels. Um, I'm not sure that's specific to London, but it's certainly a boundary that we hadn't come across before, and I think it's quite an unusual sight. In fact, the what's interesting about that is that the actual form of the building is then derived by the angle of the tunnels below, because the grid is set, and then the roof form is skewed in a in a in an interesting way away from those tunnels and so it balances the weight over them um so i think that's that was a really interesting boundary for us to do with the railway and working in central london on a kind of an industrial site it's got this sense of an industrial grid so it's all kind of slightly contextual in that way I'm, I'm not a big fan of the word contextual in london i like to think um there's far too much context in london there's far too many brick building Are trying to ape the past when in fact I think we should be thinking about the sun the movement of the sun and connecting as as I said before to the environment so that that sense of creativity working across tunnels working within a context which is on the edge of an industrial site or used to be creates an interesting form which fits in with London but is also has its own expression which I think is born of um, what we care about
2: again that that's absolutely amazing i because we do so many freestanding buildings here and and the only re- real challenge that we have in the city of dallas is our soil because it's such a it's such a an expansive and and it's such an expansive soil that just one one heavy rainstorm can be enough to shift your foundation you
1: know in in any direction i think the the, the other Sorry, the other boundaries, that, of course, now, is actually passive house and um, zero carbon and embodied energy, um, which are putting significant constraints on development across London. And and it will get more and more so, and correctly so, um, in terms of uh, carbon taxes, I'm sure, are on their way. Um, We recently did a competition where there was a question of whether we should um, demolish the building and rebuild a new one. Um, I think demolishing buildings have become more and more difficult um going forward uh, uh retrofit will become a massive thing in london um there are awards specifically for retrofit um in order to save embodied carbon so i i think i think that boundary or that question of uh making sure that buildings are compact um we make best use of the existing stock and that any additions or any refurbishments that we make are good for the environment is, is a significant boundary going forward for architecture and uh, the creativity around making buildings in London and uh, the UK more generally.
2: Passive House been adopted across, as part of the code that, that London and the surrounding areas have to follow?
1: No, no, we don't have to follow it at present, but more and more councils, we're working with um, a council at the moment on uh, three assisted living projects. Each one's about 40 uh, units, and we're exploring Passive House. Uh, The Sterling prize winner last year here, the biggest prize in the UK for architecture was won by a Passive House scheme for a council. Uh, I don't know how many units it was, but it it was a part of a town. Um, and so councils are now more and more aware of the need to uh, be looking towards much more environmental responses when they're developing their projects. And, and rightly so, because buildings take a long time to build and things are moving fast. And the people who want to buy the houses or want to live in the houses, want to be in the best houses they can, they want to keep their heating bills down and they want to help save the environment. Um, and so it, it's the market just as much as as, as the willingness. And, and I think that's an incredible thing that's happening. And I think the pandemic is helping, again, with that process, is of people being more conscious of the environment and more conscious of the environment they live in.
0: Okay. Well, we are, I think, running out of time. <laughs> uh, Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. We really do appreciate you You hopping on um hopping on the podcast so late uh, across the pond i know we're we're six hours behind you so you were nice enough to to go ahead and and join us late anything anything you wanted to add before we before we sign off
1: no just thank you for asking and um i think london has got a, a bright future ahead of itself i think 2021 might be difficult but 2022 is going to be very exciting and there's a lot of great architecture i've been fortunate enough to a, judged some awards recently and some of the work that's coming out of this city is is really rather wonderful um lots of young practices setting up you know setting up in a recession as they say is always the best time because it can't get any worse so i'm looking forward to seeing all the young practices that come through from this pandemic that's really great
0: well cool well everyone we hope you've enjoyed the podcast as usual if you have any comments or stuff you can Reach me, Larry, at spottedogarchitecture.com or, of course, on Instagram and Twitter at spotteddogarch. And for Matthew.
2: You can find me at Matt on Twitter, and you can always visit our website at architecturegeeks.com.
0: All right. Well, everyone, we will be back in a couple of weeks with a new podcast. In the meantime, enjoy yourselves. Stay safe, be safe, and we will talk with you later. Bye. Bye. Bye.